Uh, this morning we're going to partake of communion together, and oftentimes uh, we do this as um, an act of response. Uh, we we're participate in, in the music and the worship that is, that is sung, and we, uh, we listen to, uh, to, to a message or to a sermon, and in response to that, then we uh, partake of communion. This morning, um, we're actually going to take communion as an act of invitation, an act of invocation. Uh, that uh, the, the rest of this message would, would land and stand securely on uh, what it is that Jesus has done for us. So if you would, would you please turn with me uh, to John chapter 13. We're going to be in verse 3. Uh, the story we're about to read took place the same night that, uh, uh, that Jesus instituted this Lord's Supper. Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So that same night, Jesus, he took bread, and he ripped it into pieces, and he passed it out to his disciples. It was a symbol about what he would do for them the next day, where he would give his body over unto death. He would give himself ultimately for us. If you're here this morning and you would say that I am in Christ and he is in me, then this is a moment for you to remind yourself of the identity that you have because of him, that he's changed everything for you. And this right here is a symbol that even now he's with you. And so if you are in Christ and he in you, please partake. That night as he washed the disciples' feet, he was serving them in a very lowly way. They had no idea that the following day his service would be even, even greater and lowlier act as he gave himself over unto death. He took the cup that night, he blessed it, and he said that this cup is the symbol of a new covenant a new relationship that we get to have with God the Father because of his blood poured out for us. If you are in him and he is in you, take it and drink all.
Lord Jesus, we know that you're present with us. We take a moment to consciously remind ourselves that you are here. We look to you this morning as our example of what it means to serve. I pray that we would follow it. I pray that by the power of your spirit living in us, uh, we would have a different motivation for why we serve the world around us. We pray that you would speak this morning in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, um, years ago, I found myself standing uh, in a, a park, uh, a rundown park in um, a rundown part of Tacoma, Washington. And I had spent uh, the morning with people from the, the church that we were a part of uh, picking up trash and spreading bark dust uh, in, in uh, flower boxes and planters. And I was hot and I was tired and it was early afternoon and I looked around at the people in this park and uh, they, were, they were playing and, and, uh, and recreating and relaxing. And, and what I noticed about this is that not a single one of them said thank you. Uh, I'd taken the day off from work to go to this park and to clean it up and to pick up trash and to do all this, this stuff. And, and, and nobody said thank you. Nobody even seemed to know what, notice what we were doing. Nobody came along and said, hey, this is a great thing. Can, can we join you in this? Can, can we help? Nobody did that. Um, nobody seemed to care. And, and in fact, there are some people even threw down trash right in front of us so that they could watch us pick it up. And I'm looking at this and I'm like, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Not a single one of these people has come and asked me to introduce them to Jesus. No, nobody has come to Jesus. To, like, why would we do this? Why do we serve in this way? Why serve? Well, this morning, um, well, for the past four weeks or so, we've been doing this series called God, uh, Jesus Saturation. And the point of this series is to address questions around house church. Why do we do house churches? What's the point of them, what they're about? Um, why are we you know, investing so much in them? Why do we talk about them so much? What is this whole thing about? And so uh, we, we've started this series, and, and, and very, at the very beginning of the series, we looked at this question, what is church? What essentially is church? And, and when we look at the Bible, what we discover is that church is this. It is the people of God, saved by the work of Jesus, for his purposes in the world. For his purposes in the world. Now, um, the first week we talked a little bit about our, our hypocrisy. The, the reality is, is that there's something that we want to be as a people, and oftentimes we don't measure up to what we say we are. We're hypocrites. The good news is Jesus was not a hypocrite. Uh, the good news is that he lives the life that we can't live, and he makes up for the difference between what we say we are and what we actually are. And so we talked about what the church is that first week. The second week, we talked about uh, Jesus a little bit more in his work. This work that saves us and how complete it is and how perfect it is and how whole it is. Jesus' work, it, it saves us past, present, and future. Jesus' life and his death and his, his resurrection, that it saves us from the penalty of sin. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. We've been saved from the wrath of God. We've been saved from an eternal destiny without him. We've been saved from the power, or I'm sorry, the, the penalty of sin. But presently speaking, because of the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus ascends into heaven and he sends the spirit to indwell us, to live inside of us. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead now lives inside of us and now we have the power to overcome sin. Sin is not the last word for us. We're not stuck in it. We're not trapped in it. We have the power of the spirit to overcome sin. And and, and so we see this in in Jesus' salvation, but we also see that he will eventually save us from the presence of sin. We have this future salvation that one day he's gonna make everything right and that the the existence and the presence of sin is gone forever. So no more death, no more sin, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more any of that. We're we're saved from the presence of sin completely. This is Jesus' salvation. It's so whole, it's so perfect. And this is what he's given for us. We as Christians, though, we focus on what we've been saved from that we've been saved from the wrath of God, that we've been saved from hell, we've been saved from sin. We also talk about, you know, what we've been saved to. We've been saved to a new family. We've been saved to a new relationship. We've been saved to, you know, a a, a future eternity in heaven. But we don't talk about what we've been saved for as much. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. This is a beautiful passage of scripture. You've been saved by Jesus and it's a gift of grace and you, you can't earn it and it's this beautiful, beautiful gift. And for the Christian, this is fantastic news. But we stop right there and we don't look at verse 10 which says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're saved for a purpose. We've been saved from something. We're saved to something. We're also saved for something. And and what is that purpose? Jay talked a couple of weeks ago about discipleship. Jesus gives us this great commission before he goes into heaven, and he says, I'm sending you. Go make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey me. We've been sent, and this is, this is the work which we've been saved for, to go and make disciples. And, and, and so we, we, we're meant to go and do this, but as we go, we, we realize that we carry this new identity with us, that because of what Jesus has done for us, we have been changed so profoundly by him. And so we have this new identity, and Clem talked about that last week, this, this identity of family. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we've been adopted as children of God. Because of what Jesus has done for us, I, I'm a son of God. And if, and if you're a son of God, then that makes us brothers. And if you're a daughter of God, then that makes you my sister. And we have this family relationship now with one another. And, and this should change how we live with one another, but it should also change how we go about bringing other people into the family. We're a family. And so today I want to talk about this second identity, this identity of being a servant. We're servants. We're servants because Jesus was a servant. So we're gonna dive into that. And I wanna basically, with our time this morning, look at two motivations. I wanna get down to the bottom of this why question. Why serve? And there's really two motivations that we can have. The first one, you could say, is a motivation that would come from our own flesh or from the world around us or a motivation that would even come from Satan himself. And it's the motivation that simply says this, we serve in order to be served. We serve others in order to be served by others. We, we serve in order to receive. It is service that is transactional. Transactional form of service. 
And we see this coming out in a lot of ways. Here's, here's the first one I think we see coming out of us. Uh, we, we, we receive, or we're, we're wanting to receive love, acceptance, or approval. We, we serve another person so that we can hear them say thank you. Like that day in the park for me, doing that and looking around and seeing a bunch of people who wouldn't even say thank you, and I'm offended because I was there to serve for what I could get. I was looking for approval. I was looking for the approval of, of the people that I was serving with, right? Those other Christians who could look at me and say, you're part of the team, we're part of this little Jesus family. Get their approval and their attaboys, and I didn't get that either. Have you experienced that? Like, as I'm willing to bet, if you're a mom, you experience this every day. That you do and you do and you do and you serve and you serve and you serve and, and at the end of the day, you don't have a child who's saying, thank you, mom. Thanks. You don't find that. And so you know, you know what it's like. Second reason, I, or a second way that we, we see this, this sort of transactional service is in, in receiving physical benefits or material prosperity. You know, uh, we talked about the giving statements earlier, right? There was a time for, for many of us where we could take uh, deductions based on our charitable donations, right? For some of us now, it, it doesn't even matter. Um, but charitable donations, right? And so you, you could get a tax break for your charitable donations. And so in the long run, you, you, can, you can benefit to some degree in a material way by serving others. And we see that in all sorts of ways. We, we see it in, in, in like, if I, if I serve these people, then, then somehow I'll, I'll be, I'll, somebody will notice and they'll give me a gift, right? So somebody will, will see what it is that I'm doing and how I'm serving, and they'll, and they'll bless me in some way. And we're like, this is great. Like, the, the financial or the, the material blessing that we can get from serving others can be a motivation for us. Third one is uh, receive spiritual benefits. Receive spiritual benefits. Not material benefits, but spiritual benefits. And we can see that in a couple of ways. Uh, protection from hardship. I think a lot of Christians, we have this idea like God's like a mobster. Like he's got a protection racket. And if we serve him enough... If we jump through all these hoops, you know, we, we were you know, on the, the worship team or we're in kids' life or we're doing all these things for him, and then all of a sudden, there's the diagnosis from the doctor. Then all of a sudden, a loved one's going into the hospital. Then all of a sudden, there's a job loss. And we're looking up at God and we're saying, wait a minute, I've paid you off. I've served you. I've done all these things for you. Why aren't you protecting me? Why aren't you preventing this hardship from happening to me? Another way we see a spiritual benefit or looking for the spiritual benefit is in terms of righteousness or justification. I've done all of these things. I haven't done all of these things. Therefore, I'm approved of by God. I'm justified by God. I'm made righteous before him. Last one I'll, I'll talk about is worship. A desire to receive worship. You ever want to be a hero? You ever want to be a savior? You ever look at somebody, and, and whether that's a homeless person, you think, I can dive into that, and I can save that person. There's a drug addict, and I'm going to dive into that person's life, and I'm going to save that person. There's an orphan, and I'm going to adopt them, and I'm going to save that child. I'm going to be their savior. I thought that. Melissa and I were first licensed as foster parents. When we brought Jack and Hank home, I thought I was going to be their savior. 
Not so much. We, we, we look for, for, for this from people, and we think, I'm going to be a hero in the eyes of people, but some of us think that we're going to be a hero in the eyes of God. We, we think that God needs us to save him. Uh, E.W. Tozer, uh, he wrote a little book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and it's, um, it, it's a very worshipful theology book, and it's very small. And in his chapter on uh, the self-sufficiency of God, he, he, writes, he writes this. Probably the hardest thought of all for our natural egotism to entertain is that God does not need our help. He goes on, I fear that thousands of younger persons in inter-Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add to this a certain degree of commendable idealism, a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged, and you have the true drive behind much Christian activity today. Some of us think that God needs us to save him. That at the bottom of our reasons for serving, at the very base of this, there is this faithfulness that says God is either incapable of saving or he is unwilling to save. And so either he is not great, either he is not powerful, or he is not good, and so he's depending upon me to jump in and save the day. See, there's this first motive that we look at it and we see that there's this transactional motive behind the way that we serve people. We serve for what we get out of it. And I want to show you that there's two different trajectories from that motivation. The first is despair. I know it says pride first. I'm going to go this way. The first is despair. Because you will, mom, day after day after day, serve that child. And you will find a child who one day screams in your face, not, you're so wonderful, but I hate you. You'll serve that child and, and you'll give your life to them. And at the end, there, there may not be any gratitude. There may not be any thanksgiving. And they may just take and take and take. You might serve that homeless person. You might serve that drug addict. Or you might serve that orphan. Or you might serve that widow. You might go to all these lengths. And at the end of it, you find yourself depleted. And there's no approval. And there's no love. And there's no gratitude. And you might go through all of these links and you might find not only did it not benefit you materially, not only did you not get a full bank account because of it, your bank account was empty because of it and spiritually depleted. Spiritually depleted. Not only did God, because of your service to another people, not only did he not protect you from hardship, you experienced more hardship through that. And you find at the end of it, you haven't been righteous. You haven't been justified by him. And in the end, you're not worshiped. You're not glorified by man, you're not glorified by God, and you're left in despair because you never got anything back that you were hoping to get. And that despair leads to bitterness, and that bitterness leads to isolation as you go on and decide, I'm never gonna help anybody again. The other side is pride because they could say thank you. And they could pat you on the back. And they could say how grateful they are for you and what you have done. And you are my hero. And you saved my life. And you went through the, all of this. And, 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 and I am who I am because of you. 
And what blossoms out of that is this, this pride. And you might even think, um, if you're wealthy, like that God has given me this wealth, he's blessed me because I've done this for other people. Or I haven't had a whole lot of hardship in my life, and that's because God has, 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 has made it so that I don't have to experience it because of, I've been so good to other people. And there's this big pride that, that blossoms up inside of us, and we think we're righteous before God, and, and, and we think he owes us, and it's just pride. But the reality is, is whether it's despair or whether it's pride, the end result is death. And we're gonna talk about that here in a moment. It's death. But there's another kind of pride. Different than the flesh or the world or the devil's form of transactional service, there's another kind of service. There's a gospel service. Would you please turn with me to Philippians 2? Five through nine, Paul writes to the Philippian church, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Have this mind among yourselves, Paul says. In other words, have this kind of motivation. And he points to Jesus. And he points to the Son of God who says he, he descended, he emptied himself. Now that doesn't mean that God emptied himself of divinity. He's still God. It means he emptied himself of glory to take on this position of servant. And the word servant is the Greek word, uh, it's doulos. And it, it literally means a humble and despised condition. The son of God descends and becomes a, a humble, despised condition. And he submits himself to serve to the point of death. Excruciating death. This is the picture of service. Have that mind among you. Not a transactional service. Not serving for what you get out of it. Have this mind about, uh, that you would descend and that you would humble yourself and that you would become a form of, like that you would hand over your life. See, what motivates a person to do that? What motivated Jesus to do that? We go back to the beginning of the story and in Genesis 1 we see in the beginning God created and he created the heavens and the earth and at the center of this creation there's a garden and there's these two human beings that are meant to reflect his glory and they're made to multiply and they're made to, to, to go over the whole earth and subdue it. Essentially they're made to reign and rule with God. To rule and reign with him showing all of creation what God is like. Why did God do that? Why did God create? Is it because God was lonely? You think God created humanity because he was lonely? Why did he create? Is it because he needed somebody to say thank you? He, he needed somebody's approval. He needed somebody's acceptance. That's, that's why, right? Maybe it was some sort of material thing. Maybe he created human beings to, to bless him in some material or physical way that we, we, we could, through our labor, build something for him. I think that's what he needed. 
Do you think he needed some sort of spiritual blessing from us? Right? You think that, that, that he created us so that, uh, so that he would have somebody to protect? He needed to be a protector. Or, or he, he needed to have somebody who, that he could measure his own righteousness against, right? He could have a relationship with somebody and say, I'm better than them. Or, or maybe he wanted to be a hero. Maybe God made us because he needed to be worshipped. I think that's the case. See, here's the thing. If God is self-sufficient, that means he needs nothing. It means nothing. And if he needs, then that thing that he needs, that in fact is God. If God is self-sufficient, then he needs nothing, and, and, and anything that he would need, that is actually superior and greater than he is. That's in fact God. So if you human being think that God needs you, you're saying that you're greater than God. I hate to break it to us, God doesn't need us. Why then did he make us? Story goes that Adam and Eve, made to reign and rule with him, decided to reign and rule on their own. They reject him, they rebelled against him, they disobeyed him, and sin and death entered into our reality. And what does God do? He pursues, He goes after them, He creates a new family. The children of Abraham become a nation and he gives this nation a law, a law which is meant to help shape them so that the world would look at them and they would see what God is like through the way that they lived out this law. And, and they were given this new uh, Garden of Eden. They were given this promised land and, and, and they were meant to be a kingdom of priests and the whole world would see what God is like and they would see who, who God is and the whole world would be blessed because of them. And instead of of, of, of following God after, or after God, they decided they wanted to reign and rule themselves too, just like our first parents. And so what does God do? He pursues. And so prophet after prophet after prophet comes after his people to call them back in the right relationship with them until at one point, God says, I'm done and I'm gonna allow other nations to come and take you away. And they do. But I want you to notice something, that even going into exile, hear the words of God through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29 he says, take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. You see this? Continue to multiply is what he's saying. But look at verse seven. But seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the people that are taking you into captivity. Seek the welfare of those who are dragging you off as slaves. Seek the welfare of the city. Do, do you realize that as Christians we're exiles? That this isn't our home. But while here, we are meant to seek the welfare of the communities in which we live. We're meant to, to be the people that point the rest of, of the world to God and what he is like. Why? Why did God create? Why have we been saved? Why have we been sent? Why did Jesus come? Why did he become a servant? Why? Turn over with me to 1 John. Chapter 4. Verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Why did God do it? Because he is love. Because he is love. God didn't make you because he needs you. God made you because he is love. Jesus did not empty himself and take on the form of a servant for any other reason than love. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that if we would believe in him, we would not perish but have eternal life. That God is love. That's the motivation for why God has done what he has done for us. I want you to turn now to Matthew uh, 25. There's a picture that Jesus tells about uh, a time of judgment. When people will stand before him. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd. Separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Now you could take that passage out of context and you could say what Jesus is saying there is that we can earn salvation through serving other people. But that's taking the passage out of the context of the rest of the New Testament. Remember Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? It is by grace that you have been saved. It is a gift, so you can't boast about it. Our salvation is a gift. These people that he's calling righteous here, they're not righteous because of what they have done. They're righteous because of what he has done for them. But because of what he's done for them, that has changed how they live. It's given them a new identity and a new purpose, and it's made them servants. And because they are servants, they've served all these people. Their motivations have been changed. The, the passage continues, and, and it's the goats who are brought before him now, and he, and, and he says, you didn't serve me. Like, you didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You didn't visit me when I was sick. You didn't do all these things. And they'll say, well, when did we see you? And they'll say, because you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. You know, the reality is, is all of us are gonna stand before God someday, and some of us are gonna go to God, and we're, we're gonna say to him, I, I served in this way, and I served this, these people, and I've done this, and I've done that, and, and because of all that, you should accept me. And, and Jesus will say to us, you didn't do that for me. 
You did it for you. You look to all of these things in order to validate your life. It wasn't for me, it was for you. See, the motive in all of this matters. And there's one motive that leads to death, and there's one motive that leads to life. And the motive that leads to death is a motive that is for what we can get out of it. We serve others in a transactional way for what we get in return. And that is not the love of Jesus. Before we were righteous, he died for us. I want us to come full circle uh, this morning. And if you would, uh, go back to John 13 with me. Again in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around it. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And I'm going to pause right there for a second. If we are going to embrace a gospel motive for serving, this is where it begins. It begins with us recognizing that we need to be served first. Have you been served by Jesus? Have you needed to be served by Jesus? Have you recognized that the life you've lived is, is in need of help? That, that you need Jesus to, to live the life you can't? You need Jesus to die for you. You need Jesus to rise for you. You need Jesus to serve you. And the reality is, if you never accept that Jesus needed to serve you in that way, whatever motive you have for serving others, it will always be about you. It'll be about your glory and it'll be about your honor. It has to begin with a recognition. I need to be saved by Jesus. I need to be washed by Jesus. I need to be served by him. He goes on, verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You recognize that you need to be served by Jesus, and because he served you, that's the motivation for serving others. He loved you, so you love others. He laid his life down for you, so you laid down your life for others. This is the source of our motivation for serving the world around us. We're servants because Jesus was a servant. Any other motive will point to you rather than pointing to him. And so we see there is this fleshly, worldly, satanic motive of self-serving to serve others for what you can get out of it. And then there is this gospel motive, this love motive. How do we go from one to the other? 
How do, you, how do you give up this motivation to embrace this motivation? The truth is, if you were to, if you were to examine my heart, if you were to examine the reasons why I do much of what I do, you were to look at my motives, what you would find is that I am a very selfish person. I am a very self-centered, self-serving person. And the motives behind the way I raise my sons oftentimes are so that one day I can look at them and they're successful, mature men and I can point to them and say, I did that. Why do I serve my wife? Why do I vacuum the floor? Or why do I uh, unload the dishwasher or fold the laundry? Why do I do those things? Oftentimes the primary motive is for what I can get from her in return. Why do I, I serve in the community or why do I lead a house church? It's so that people will look at me and say, that's a good pastor. That's what a good pastor is supposed to look like. In my relationships with friends, in my relationships with my neighbors, I do things so that they'll think I'm a good friend, that they'll think I'm a good neighbor. I am such a selfish person. And when it comes to this, why do I plan and prepare and, and put all this together in order to, to speak to you on almost a weekly basis? What is my motive for doing this? And the honest answer is, so much of the time, it's because I want you to love me. I am a selfish person. How do I go from this driven by my flesh and the world and Satan driven by this motive to do everything that I do in order to get some return from it. How do I go from this to a gospel motive? How does that change? Do I stop? Do I say, I can't do it, right? I, I, I can't have a good motive for how I'm gonna raise my kids, so I'm gonna stop raising my kids. I can't have a completely pure motive for, for how I relate to my wife and serve her, so I'll stop being a husband. I can't have a, a pure, 100% pure heart towards serving in the community or serving in a house church, so I'll stop that. And I can't be a, a purely good friend for the right reason, so I'll stop being a friend and I'll stop being a neighbor. And I'll stop all of this. And I'll wait, because someday maybe I'll have the right motives and then I'll be able to serve. Is that what I should do? See, all those years ago in that park, I looked over another guy who was from our church and I said, why are we doing this? Why? And he said to me, you know, sometimes our motives change what we do with our hands. But sometimes what we do with our hands actually changes our motives. Sometimes serving is more life-changing for us than it is for other people. What if we were in an act of service and we were willing to say, God, I know that I'm about to serve this person and I know I'm gonna do it for what I can get out of it, but I don't want to. I don't want to. Will you change what I want? Will you change what I'm about to do for the wrong reasons and will you make it the right ones? Will you change my heart through what I do with my hands? I'm gonna begin to wrap up here. So I'm gonna ask something of you. If, uh, if you're like me, 
If you don't like me, don't, don't listen. If you're like me and would say this morning, I am a selfish person, but I don't want to be. Would you stand with me? I want you to hold out your hands. We've been given hands to serve people. We've been given all sorts of things in order to serve people. But oftentimes, we serve people for the wrong reasons. We serve people for what we can get out of it. And when we do that, we make these unclean. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, we lift up hands to you that are filthy. Lord Jesus, we need you to serve us again. We need you to cleanse us again. We need you to change our hearts. We give you these hands and we ask that you redeem them. We ask that you continue to give us this work for your purposes and for your glory, but change our motives for why we do them so that it's not about our glory, but it's for your glory. We give you our hands. Let them work for you. Lord Jesus, thank you for serving us. We did not deserve it. Holy Spirit, give us your power to live out what we're actually asking for this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.